We're going to dive right in with Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. It says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So as much as I would like to just read this verse to my kids and say, okay, honor me, I'm done, you know, and just go by my way, and they have to just honor me no matter what, I don't think they would understand the concept of honor if I don't teach it to them, especially in today's society where honor is all about public accolades and being famous or rich and not the biblical meaning of honor. True honor is a complex and abstract concept. How will our children ever learn to honor and respect us, God, and others if they are not treated with honor and respect themselves? Ephesians 6, 4 follows up on 2 and 3 about honoring your mother and father with, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So while it's nice to hear 2 and 3 and think your kids are obligated to honor you, There is the second part of that, which says fathers, but I believe that it's um, calling us to do the same, um, is it's our job to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That means it is our responsibility as parents to bring up our children with proper life instruction. We have to instill in them both honor and respect by teaching them these things as fundamentals of life. As my very favorite author, Bob Goff, says, we will never honor Christ if we forget to honor each other. But what does honoring our children look like, practically speaking? I know, especially for those of us with little ones, you're like, how am I supposed to do that? Um, Well, I think the biggest way we can honor our kids really at any age, both for us and for them, is honoring them through service. We honor our children by serving them day in and day out. God sees this service and is honored by it. Um, One of the concepts I've been teaching my kids this month that they're getting through KidQuest here is we honor others by putting them first. Well, I really need to put that in practice and honor my children by putting them first and not me. Um, One way I do that is by, and I do it reluctantly, I'm just going to say that, um, is making them lunch every single day. My kids just started, like, full-time school this past year, and I have to make two lunches and four snacks every single day. And there's a lot of allergies, and then my kids are the pickiest eaters you'll ever meet, which is, like, my number one mom struggle, so I'll just throw it out there for you. Um, So trying to come up with things that are both remotely healthy and that they'll actually eat, like, especially without me sitting there telling them they have to, um, that is a struggle for me. And it's something, you know, that we do five days a week. So I definitely had a moment recently where I kind of was over it and feeling down in the mouth about having to do it, like my pity party over making lunch, which sounds silly, but trust me, when you do it that often, it gets that way. Um, I sought some advice from a more experienced mom. And what she told me was that while it seemed mundane and while it seemed like I'm just doing it every day and still getting the notes home that they didn't eat anything or whatever it is, which I do I actually got a talk yesterday. So after I wrote this, even. <laughs> so, but what she told me was that no one else may see that because everyone else is asleep while I'm still up doing it, but God sees it. So it may seem mundane, and it may seem like something that I feel like a failure at, 
But the fact that I'm doing it every single day anyways is honoring to God. And it's honoring my kids because I keep trying, even when it feels like something that I just want to give up on. <clears throat> you think they'd be okay with, like, Cheetos for lunch? Then they would eat it, but I would probably get a little more notes home. But anyways, she told me that that's honoring to God, especially in the times when no one else sees it. And isn't that most of our services, moms? No one else sees all the things that we're doing day in and day out. We're the first ones up and the last ones to go to bed usually. Um, And yet God is with us every single step of that way. 2 Corinthians 9.13 says, Because of this service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And Proverbs 31.27 says, She looks way to, well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. So I tell myself that this means my house does not have to be perfect, and it certainly is not. It actually looks like a bomb went off on it right now because I'm doing the craft show tonight, so it's like, it really looks like like a soap bomb went off in my house. But, um, but what I take that to mean is that in terms of not the bread of idleness is to keep trying every day and keep plugging away, um, whether it's making lunches, changing diapers, or staying up till curfew, to know your kids are home safe. All of these things honor our children as well as God. And just as a quick side note, Proverbs 31 is a great guide to the virtues of a godly woman. If you haven't read it, I would suggest you do so. But I would also like to mention, at least for me, I find it that it can be intimidating because you read the whole thing and you're like, I can't do all these things. I'm not, it's just not possible for me. So um, what I take from it is that it is not a call to be perfect. And I read something on a blog called The Full-Time Girl, which I recommend. The writer's name is Danelle Vintus, which I probably butchered her last name. But she points out about the Proverbs 31 woman, what makes this nameless yet famous woman so significant is not the fact that she knows how to cook, clean, have babies, and stay home while taking care of her family. It is not the fact that she has great wisdom and business sense. It's not because she's an all-rounder woman. Of course, that's great and valuable for any godly woman. But it's her fear of the Lord that makes her a woman of virtue. That's it. Her perfection does not stem from impeccable homemaking skills, but from her heart. Her perfection is not her own. It belongs to the one who owns her soul. The only reason why the Proverbs 31 woman can be perceived as perfect is because she is a product of God who lives within her. The only thing that's perfect about her is him. So while I suggest that is an awesome verse and it is something I draw to a lot to try to try to meet all those virtues, keep in mind that the only thing that would make someone perfect is the perfectness of God through us. Now, the next thing I'm going to talk about is something I'm probably the very least qualified person in this room to talk about because I do not have teens, and I'm going to go into honoring teens. But while prepping for this month, the Lord kept laying teens and honor on my heart. I feel like it's such an issue in society these days. And um, we'll just read the... It says, welcome to being a parent of a teenager. Prepare for large amounts of eye-rolling emotional outbursts, and thoughts of running away. And that's just the parents. 
So I think I found humor in it. Um, and I have nieces and nephews who are teens, and I am around teenagers a lot. But I think that our society, I think it's a twofold problem. On the one hand, we have a lot more disrespect and not honoring of our elders and that kind of thing. But I also think society has lost its way in teaching, especially people at those critical years, how to honor others and how to be honorable. So we're holding to the, them to a standard that we haven't taught them to be able to do. So we're setting them them up, at least in some ways, to be a society for failure in that. So I sought the advice of um, people who have had teens, and I read uh, two great articles by Greg and Gary Smalley that were specifically on ways parents can honor teens. There are four specific ways, and I listed them in your magazine, so if you don't feel like you have to frantically write it down, and I listed the website where you can read the full articles. Um, But there are four main ways. Uh, They say to place your teen in a highly respected position, See your teen as a priceless treasure. Demonstrate honor in your actions and suspend judgment towards your teen and add curiosity. Um, In terms of placing your teen in a highly respected position, the example they gave was um, Gary Smalley is Greg Smalley's father, and they went to a, he's like a famous Christian speaker. Most of you probably have heard of him. But he, when uh, Greg was about 13 years old, he brought him to a conference with him. And he, like, introduced him around at the conference and gave him a couple of responsibilities at the conference. And it turned out that his very favorite football player was one of the attendees at the conference. And his father introduced him, but not in the, like, hey, meet this famous person. It was like, here's my son. This is what he's doing at this conference. And it really made him feel important. And, like, his dad felt like he was a respected, almost an adult like anyone else at the conference. And he said that that affected him for the rest of his, like, teen years. He was still in middle school when that happened, but in, even through high school, it, he remembered that instance of feeling like his dad actually respected him and didn't just think of him as a small child. Um, number two is the one I f- want to focus on the most because I feel like I see this through kids of any age, and it's something I feel like we could all hear, is seeing your child or your teen as a priceless treasure. I think when, every, when anyone has a baby, we always see them as a priceless treasure. And that's amazing, and they are absolutely a priceless treasure. But as your kid gets a little older, I feel like people stop asking for all their school pictures and calling just to check on you and see how you're doing with parenting and check on your child and see how they're doing. And, you know, with the way society is now, at that age, I think it's easy for kids to start feeling like they don't have as much value as we all know they do but maybe we're not good at telling them. So I'm going to read a story called Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. Now, I'm not saying that I go along with anything about buying wives with cows or anything, but I just want you to hear the story as an illustration of ways we can make people feel valuable. So Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife by Patricia McGurr illustrates the unlimited power of viewing and treating someone like a priceless treasure. Johnny Lingo was a young man who lived on the island of Nurabandi, not far from the island of Kiniwata in the South Pacific. And yes, I listened to Google tell me how to say those so that I didn't sound stupid up here. <laughs> uh, Johnny was one of the brightest, strongest, and richest men in the islands, but people shook their heads and, and kind of smiled and laughed um, when they heard his name because they were thinking of a business deal he had made with a man on the island of Kiniwata. It was customary among the people of these islands for a man to buy his wife from her father, the price being paid in cows. 
two or three cows would buy an average wife, and four or five would fetch a highly satisfactory wife. Yet for some reason, Johnny had paid the unheard of price of eight cows for his wife, Sarita, who was unattractive by society's standards. As one man explained, it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny, she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked down. She was scared of her own shadow. Now, why did Johnny Lingo pay eight cows, especially for such a woman? Everyone figured Sarita's father, Sam, had taken young Johnny for a ride, and that's why the Islanders smiled whenever they discussed the business deal. Now, the author of the story, Patricia McGurr, actually met with Johnny Lingo herself and got a chance to ask him about his eight-cow purchase. She assumed he had done it for his own vanity to show how rich he was um, or just to build up his own reputation. But then she saw Sarita. Um, I read another article about it, and it said they were actually like sitting in a hotel that he ran, and Sarita walked by while she was having this conversation. And this is what Patricia McGurr said about her. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle in her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. Sarita was not the plain girl Patricia had expected, and the expl- ex- excuse me, explanation lay with her husband. Did you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband settled on the lowest price for which she could be bought? And then later when the women talk, they boast of their husband, what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. So how does it feel to the woman who only fetched one or two cows? That could not happen to my Sarita. So McGurr asked if he did it just to make her happy. Yes, I wanted Sarita to be happy, but I wanted more than that. That is true. Many things can change a woman, things that happen inside, things that happen outside, but the thing that, hap- that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kiniwata, Sarita believes she was worth nothing. Now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. I wanted to marry Sarita, yes. I loved her and no other woman, but I wanted an eight-cow wife. Because Johnny Lingo considered Sarita to be worth eight cows, she began to see and present herself as an eight-cow woman. Before Johnny entered her life, she was shy, playing, and quiet. After he placed incredible value upon her, she was transformed into a confident, attractive, self-assured woman who knew what she was worth. Now today, just think your teen or child of any age might be feeling like they aren't full of value like they are less than someone else. I mean, that's all we see in the media is you're not pretty enough, you're not skinny enough, you're not rich enough, you're not whatever it is. Um, If we treat our children like the priceless people that they are, that God made them to be, then it will help them combat society telling them that they're not. Um, I also think it's important to point out that in Matthew 6, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart will lie also. If you remember to treasure your child at any age, it will help you focus on them in the way God wants you to. So I think one good way of doing this, practically speaking, is um, obviously to tell your kid how much you value them and tell them when they honor you. Like I recently told my kids they picked up without 
me asking them to, and I know that's like a small example, but I used the word honor when I said, thank you, that was a blessing to me. You honored me by doing this without me having to ask you because I want the wheels to be turning that they're giving me honor by doing things to serve me without having to be told. Um, Another example that Bob Goff, who I'm going to mention as many times as I possibly can in case you haven't noticed, um, he gave a good example when I saw him speak earlier this year. He said that he bought each of his kids like a gilded, fancy-looking mirror. But what he did is when they were feeling down about themselves, it's like a handheld mirror. He made them hold it and look at themselves, and he would stand behind them and say all the virtues he saw God put in them. And he would just repeat them over and over. And then sometimes I think he even said, He would make them say some things about themselves, but while looking at their reflection, because it helped them see how much worth they had to hear all the virtues about them while being able to see themselves. So, excuse me. So I think that that's a good example of a way to do it. Um, The third thing is to demonstrate honor in your actions. Just remember that your kids are always watching how you react. I absolutely have reacted out of anger and wished I hadn't, but I think the point you can take from it is next time try your best not to but just remember they're watching not just how you react to them but even how you react to when you're wronged in a store or by a friend or something they're watching all of those things and if you treat others with honor even without saying it they'll model your behavior and um, the fourth thing that specifically with teens but I think can apply to all kids is suspend judgment and add curiosity I do think it's often true that we we almost expect the worst of them. Like when they start to explain something they did and it might be something that you aren't thrilled that they did, we don't hear the whole story before we react. I mean, I do that even with my kids. I hear a crash and I assume they purposely broke something or even if they didn't, that they were being careless. We really need to just try to hear the whole story before we judge. Um, And um, he says you'll have a... Gary Smalley says, you'll have a more open relationship with your teen if you try to add curiosity. So ask them more questions before, even if you start to hear, like they said, well, I was out with Johnny and he's not your favorite friend of theirs. Maybe hear more what they had to say about it because for all you know, they spoke the gospel to him that day, but you shut them down when you were like, oh, you were with them again, like that kind of thing. And so if you add curiosity and not pointed questions, it helps keep that relationship open. Um, The author Fritz Redner says, You might as well trust your teenager. You don't have any other reasonable choice. Distrust simply breeds more distrust. But if you keep trusting your teenager, sooner or later, the message will get through. That doesn't mean there's no consequences, by the way. It just means that you keep trying and you you honor them even when they don't deserve it. The Bible calls them to honor us even when we don't deserve it. We should do the same for them. And he follows with on AbundantLiving.com. How can your child ever respect and honor you if you never teach them what it means to respect and honor? Many parents punish their children by removing trust, but they fail to teach them how to do what is expected of them. So here's four other ways that we can all honor each other. These are, in the, these are what we get at KidQuest every week, the same four ways, but I think these can apply to even us as adults honoring others. First is to give them a chance. Second is to put others first. Third is to keep your promises. And fourth is to honor God by giving him the credit. Now, I asked my kids this month, there's no cute craft that you can teach them honor in one day. I think by default, that's impossible. It's a lifelong learning thing. But I did ask them ways they thought they could do each of these for their different age levels. So forgive them a chance. They, They suggested 
being the friend to the new kid in class, like being the one to go introduce themselves first, or picking the kid up for a team that's usually the last picked or may not always be the first picked, trying to pick them first. Um, For putting others first, Macy, my older daughter, said that that means to listen to others. And I kind of talked to her more about what she meant. And she said, you know, the kids at that age are so excited, they all want to talk at the same time. I hear in her class in kindergarten that they're often, they're learning to take turns. And she said that that's one of the things she's learned so far this year is to listen first and then let her answer be heard afterwards. Um, Keeping your promises. If you commit to something, fulfill your commitment. And I think that's within reason. We all have kids that end up sick or something. So don't, I am horrible at giving this huge guilt complex if I have to miss something, even if I really have no choice. But I do think if you say you're going to do something, let your yes be yes. One example of that is we're doing soccer right now. Watching three-year-olds play soccer is very interesting, let me tell you. And my younger daughter is my more athletic daughter, if you can call a three- and a five-year-old athletic. But um, we thought she would love soccer, so we made them both do it, thinking that the three-year-old would be the one to, like, take and run with it. Oh, no. The very first week, she cried the whole time, like literally face-planted in the grass and cried. And I had to, like, pick her up off the field and walk off to the chorus of another mom telling me, she's too young. You shouldn't have brought her here. Like, you need to pull her out. And I thought, what am I teaching her if her very first day, I just say, fine, you can quit. You didn't like it for the first five minutes. We made her, we made her sit and watch the rest of the team play. And when I talked to her about it, she said she doesn't like the shin guards. And, like, I, I kind of get that. <laughs> I know. It is, it is what it is. But they're probably not very comfortable, and she doesn't see the point of them until this past week when she got kicked pretty hard and luckily had one on. But, um, but the second week got a little better. The third week, and I say better in that she stands like this the whole game <laughs> on the field. And there's this part of me that's embarrassed, and I really just want to pick her up and leave because why am I sitting through two hours of soccer on Sunday afternoons when half of my children... Are, like would be anywhere else, I think she'd probably be eating like Brussels sprouts instead of playing soccer at this point. But it's only six weeks, minus the hurricane, which made it seven. Um, but not that I'm counting. But I told her, you don't have to do it again. They've already have signups for next session. And I said, fine, you don't want to do it. You don't have to do it. But we are finishing out the season because it's not physically hurting her to be there. It's really not hurting her team for her to stand there because – it's interesting for three-year-olds to play soccer anyways. So, but I told her we're honoring the commitment by finishing out the season. And then the fourth thing is honoring God by giving him credit. Now, when I asked my kids about this, they had kind of a hard time explaining. The only example they could think of was when they were watching the Olympics, they heard some of the athletes thank God for the opportunity or whatever abilities they have. And I thought that was actually a decent, like a good way to think of it. I was trying to think of like a non-public accolades way of it, but I do think that's true, is just remembering to thank God, or, or even just not take the credit for something. Like, if you donate to something, just don't say, hey, look at me while I do it. Maybe just do it and let the honor be to God. So, um, as I keep saying, honor is not all about public accolades. I know our society likes to think so, and will tell you it is, and will tell you that you're not worthy if you're not getting those, but I found this quote by blogger Whitney Galstead. It's on the board or it will be, but I know they're kind of small and hard to read. Um, I did also put it in your magazine, but I just want to end with it because it really, it's something I've actually read every day since I found it. I find that it's often in the smallest actions that honor is put into action in the biggest way. Honor is a smile. It's in forgiveness. 
its entire selflessness. Honoring is serving. It says, I value you, but not with words, with love. It is a choice we make to find Jesus in the hard and ugly of the everyday sin-soaked world. By choosing to stop and breathe and give thanks for the simple gifts like birds and sunshine and friendship, by making it our calling to honor one another, to love boldly, to be exhausted and stretched and vulnerable and filled with joy. Now, if that's not mom life, I don't know what is, ladies. Thank you.